Good morning. Julie, your microphone moment will remain one of my favorite moments. Uh, the church that I worked at in Federal Way, the Seattle area. Uh, I'm not sure why this made me think of it, but it did. Uh, we had uh, we we were arranged in the round, so the stage was in the middle. There were four sections, uh, which is interesting to both uh, preach in and lead worship. But uh, we had a man named Howard who was uh, legally blind, and Howard always sat on the very front row. And for whatever for whatever reason, uh, the people who led worship didn't use words when they asked people to sit down. Uh, it was always this. Uh, so, way too many times, everyone would sit down, and Howard's just standing there, just looking around. So I finally had to ask, can we use words? when we ask people to sit down in case I'd have to run up as people are sitting down and say everyone be seated everyone be seated to save Howard I was free uh, I wasn't even planning on telling the story uh, so last week we began the first of uh, three weeks in a sermon series on vocation I tried to frame it last week of what I mean when I talk about vocation. I'm not just talking about jobs or careers, but by vocation, I'm meaning what posture do we have in the world, which includes our work but isn't limited to it. Now, I lean heavily on the Latin root, which goes back to um, vox, which means voice. And so I talk about the three voices of vocation. And to understand who we are and our posture in the world, we need to listen attentively to the voice of our identity, who we are, how we're wired. We need to listen well to the voice of our context. It's the world around us, which includes our work, but isn't limited to it. It includes community centers and pubs and coffee shops and homes and neighborhoods. And then also uh, listen to the voice of God, uh, that transcendent other that's pulling us. And these aren't mutually exclusive. Uh, these are... Is that the problem? Yeah. You can be just a little closer to the mic. Okay. You can hold it if you want. I don't know. I don't like either. <laughs> I'll, just, I'll just pull Julie. It's not cumbersome at all. That'd be the title of your autobiography. Not cumbersome at all, the Julie Kaiser story. Um... And so when we, when we listen, um, when we are tending to uh, our vocation, uh, argue the, the primary capacity, the thing uh, to which we must commit uh, is a posture of listening and attentiveness. And last week we did a little exercise, exercise called dwelling in our vocation, and I'm going to invite us to do the same uh, this week. It's a really simple exercise. I'm going to invite us into just a few moments of silence. Uh, during which I want you to reflect on this question, and I want you to think of this last week, last seven days. Um, identify a moment of meaning. Uh, this is a moment uh, where you felt connected to something or someone. It could be a moment of gratitude or a moment of joy or a moment of hope. A moment that you can't really describe why it was meaningful, but it just connected with who you are 
Okay? It could be in your work. It could be at home. Um, wherever you find yourself. So the last seven days, so I want you to think of a moment uh, that you would um, find meaningful. Okay? Any questions? Okay. I invite us all to close our eyes, take a few deep breaths, and center ourselves. And take a moment to identify in the last week a moment that was meaningful to you. Perhaps it was a moment of laughter, a moment of hope, a moment of connection with uh, yourself or the world around you. But find a particular moment. Who was involved? <coughs> what happened? What may have been happening with your own sense of identity? Take a few moments to identify a moment of meaning in the last week. I want to invite you to open your eyes. I want you to find another person. If we could do pairs, it would be great. Let's try to avoid triads. Uh, It takes a little bit longer. And um, I'm going to ask you to share with somebody. And this is important. Um, You need to listen well with the person that shares with you. Because when we come back together, we'll be invited for those who want to to share the story they heard. Uh, So we're listening on a number of different levels. Uh, So find someone uh, next to you and share that moment of meaning. I'll try to stop you about halfway to make sure the other person gets a chance to share. So to the introverts, I'm sorry. Uh, It'll be over soon. So find somebody (laughs) and share. Okay, let's um, see if we can't find a couple volunteers to be able to share the story they heard from their partner about a moment of meaning in the past week. Duncan. Um, Patrick shared that he um, was at Goodwill. And I love how he said Goodwill. He emphasized the good, right? Um, but he said he was at Goodwill uh, filming and that one of the people there was um, had, um, had a challenge that uh, just made it hard for them to walk, hard for them to uh, physically engage. Um, but that his disposition overcame all that. Right? Mm-hmm. And he said um, that he had the prettiest smile and that it was on like a Tuesday when it was really dreary and that he was just like a ray of sunshine in the middle of that. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. Thanks, Patrick. Thanks, Patrick. And like I said last week, if your partner shares, you're not obligated to share. <laughs> Unless you want to. Someone else? Story they heard? I like to Ted shared with me about uh, Owen is now an hour later in his bedtime, so he extended his bedtime. Yeah. I mean, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Okay. Brain just died on me. What have I been here once? Anyway. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but uh, they are. He's praying with them uh, using Book of Common Prayer, you know, and then playing video games afterwards. You're doing something like that. Yeah. Uh, and just the ability to be with him, yeah. to hear his prayers, but also to see him discover on, uh, 
on the video game, the old video game, uh, it's just been precious fun for him. Yeah. Just, uh, that, that touched me. That's great. Thanks, Sarah. Thanks, Ted. One or two more, maybe? last week in this exercise, I'll mention it again. When we, when we identify moments of meaning, moments where we feel a connection with ourselves or the world around us more times than not, and my guess is those who didn't share, uh, this is a similar theme, more times than not, they're pretty small and ordinary, seemingly insignificant moments. Uh, that they're moments of simple human connection. Uh, they're moments of um, being seen or seeing someone that we haven't seen. So this morning, I want to talk a little bit about uh, the kingdom of God, develop a little bit of theology around the kingdom of God, and talk a bit about it, its implications for how we understand our place and posture in the world. So I, I grew up in a church uh, that said we didn't have to pray the Lord's Prayer. Uh, that even though Jesus says every time you pray, pray this, uh, we didn't have to. Anybody want to take a guess why? The kingdom has come. come. We don't have to pray anymore for God's kingdom to come because the kingdom, I was taught early on, is the church. And the church has arrived, and so there's no need uh, to pray for God's kingdom, because it's here. And I don't remember at what point, um, if I actually had this thought or someone else had this thought and I just uh, took it as my own, but at some point I started to think how incredibly depressing that is. <laughs> that if God's kingdom is limited to the church, we're, we're kind of screwed. <laughs> the church, for all of the good that it's done, um, I hope is not the fullest manifestation of what God wants for the world. Daryl Guter, um, 
uh, sort of redefines or uh, redescribes, retranslates uh, any time this term is used, uh, kingdom, in either the Gospel of Matthew, which uses kingdom of heaven, or another gospel's kingdom of God, as the reign of God. That the kingdom of God is not the church. Uh, the reign of God, the kingdom of God, is ushered in in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. That there is a new way that is broken into the world. A way that is defined by justice and mercy and forgiveness. It is a way that's defined that everyone has a place at the table. And we don't see this reign in its fullness, right? We still see plenty of brokenness. We still, still see plenty of places where God's reign is not evident, but we see glimpses of it. And that this reign of God actually stands outside of the church, right? The church serves the kingdom. The church isn't the kingdom. And so it's striking to me when Jesus talks about the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven in Matthew, that he uses very small and ordinary and seemingly insignificant things to describe the kingdom of God. The kingdom of heaven, this is from the Gospel of Matthew, is like a mustard seed. The kingdom of heaven is like yeast. The kingdom of heaven is treasure hidden in a field, a merchant in search of a pearl. The kingdom of heaven is a shepherd who goes to look for a lost sheep, lost coin. The kingdom of God is like a good steward who took care of the small things. But when Jesus talks about God's reign breaking into the world, it is through really small, ordinary things. And in the same way, the primary way in which God breaks into the world in the life and ministry of Jesus is pretty small and ordinary and seemingly insignificant. And we're used to the stories, and we've made them pretty extravagant, but at their core, they're pretty ordinary ways. That God enters the world through a manger, a teenage girl, a carpenter father, that Jesus gathers with people at tables, and he asks questions. And the most significant ministry through which all of the work that Jesus does is primarily through the work and ministry of being present, of simply seeing people, particularly those that others cannot or will not see. And the way in which we organize and understand and celebrate every Sunday is ordinary bread and ordinary cup. That both in the practice of his life and in the way that Jesus describes God's reign, God's way, breaking into the world, the way through which we notice and participate in the work of God in the world is through small and ordinary, everyday, seemingly insignificant things. This is why I actually really like the practice of uh, what we just did in that reflection. Because for the most part, I think, and I'll just speak for myself and project it onto everyone else um, again, that I'm always looking for the most magnificent. I, I, I think the thing that I'm really going to love is, is the thing that is um, big and impressive that moves mountains. But when I look back on my week, 
it's actually pretty ordinary stuff. And and this this notion, this God showing up in the small and mundane and ordinary, I think is difficult for us for two primary reasons. I think for uh, most, ordinary is really boring. We, we are American exceptionalists. Right? We tell our kids, you can be whatever you want, which isn't true. Maybe for the Reese kids it's true, but not for everyone else's kids. <laughs> We, we want the next best thing always. Henry Nowen wrote this great little book called In the Name of Jesus, and it's, a, it's actually a, adapted from a, a talk that he gave. And in it, he talks about um, uh, Jesus being tempted in the desert and that the three temptations are the temptation to be relevant, the temptation to be spectacular, and the temptation to be powerful. Then the temptation to turn the stones into bread, that's a temptation to be relevant. Uh, that is, Satan tempts Jesus to jump off the building and have the angels uh, um, catch him, that's the temptation to be spectacular uh, and to take all of the kingdoms, receive all of the kingdoms, to bow down uh, to Satan is the temptation to be powerful. And I don't know, um, in many ways... Uh, the pursuit of most Americans, our desire, is a pursuit to be relevant and spectacular and powerful. And I think churches are the worst at contributing to these temptations and the desire to be relevant and spectacular and powerful. Uh, I have a friend, I have friends who work and go to a church. Um, who have, as one of their mission statements, um, is to eradicate homelessness in their city. Uh, and and I, I have a, a mentor who also goes to the church who says, I think we should, we, we should have as our ministry and mission to get one homeless person off the street. Like, let's start there. Uh, I hated, for most of the time I was working at churches, I hated mission statements. Uh, besides the fact that you make them, you spend all the time and then you forget about them until the next five years and you come up with another one. Uh, like I, I, I desperately wanted a mission statement at a church to be, uh, we're trying to be less of a jerk today than we were yesterday. <laughs> like, I, I think that's a pretty worthwhile goal. Can you imagine the way in which the world would be a little bit better if we all said, I'm going to, I'm going to tick the needle just a little bit today towards being less of a jerk. So I, was, I was in Abilene. Uh, I don't know if this wants to make it on the recording. Um, <laughs> I was in Abilene a few months ago, and uh, I saw uh, someone that I've known for years, and he calls me over. He's like, hey, uh, I had coffee with your... Pastor Charles, a week or two ago. I was like, really? He said, yeah. Uh, he said you guys at Storyline are just trying to be mediocre Christians. <laughs> and I said, what? <laughs> he said, yeah, Charles said that at Storyline you guys just try to be mediocre Christians. And I don't like to 
show that I enjoy my uh, jokes too much. Um, but I was pretty proud of my response. Because <laughs> I said, okay, one, I don't think Charles said that, actually. Um, and two, even if that were the case, that feels like an improvement over most churches, doesn't it? <laughs> like a, a commitment to simply like take the next step and resist the urge to do something spectacular and relevant and powerful and say, today I'm going to be present in the most ordinary and mundane ways because that's where life happens. I think paying attention to the ordinary mundane is also difficult, not just because it, it's boring, but I think it's very hard because, as I said last week, we are very, very distracted. There, uh, there's a field of uh, research that's popped up in the last 15, 20 years, and it's distraction theory. Right? We're, we're distracted to the point that we have distraction theorists. <laughs> And, and they've done studies, they've done neurological mapping that it takes on average anywhere from 15 to 20 minutes uh, for your brain to recuperate from a distraction. So if you're working on something or you're having a conversation with someone, when a distraction happens, it takes 15 to 20 minutes for your brain to get back to where it was before that distraction happened. Uh, the average person receives a text or a phone call every 11 minutes. And so in many ways, we're never actually caught up. We're always playing catch-up on the distractions. We have endless access to screens. Most people prefer digital communication over voice-to-voice -voice or face-to-face, -face, particularly when it comes to work. And there's good and there's bad news in this. When it comes to listening to the voices of vocation, when it comes to listening specifically to the voices of our context and what God might be up to in the world, we need to pay better attention to the ordinary, mundane, small, and seemingly insignificant parts of our life. And the good news is that there is a never-ending supply of these things in our life. This is the good news. That, that if you were to make a list of all the spectacular moments, it's going to make a pretty short list. But if you were to say, I'm going to make a list today of what's boring and mundane, you're going to have an endless supply. And it's good news because that's where God often shows up. Uh, I love Val's uh, story of meaning in the midst of a hard week. Uh, it was a Thursday night. The garbage and recycling's picked up. And uh, Eloise loves to play a little silly game and they jump and from here to there and come over here. And so they're just being silly in the front yard. Uh, and, and neighbors come out, they see it, and they cheer them on. And, and they laugh, right? But, but, but by God, if delighting with the child and delighting with the neighbor, if that's not the kingdom of God breaking into the world, I don't know what is. Uh, the bad news in this uh, is that most of us would prefer to move past those things and find more entertaining options. Options that have a bit more flair and excitement. And I think it also means that we have to embrace disciplines that aren't always easy 
to embrace. Confessionally, I'm terrible at all these. But I think it means we have to embrace the discipline of contentment. To be content. That the moment we are in is enough. And the people who are in the moment right in front of us, it's enough. And it means we have to embrace the discipline of gratitude. Even in the midst of really hard and painful uh, days and weeks and months, to commit to say, today I'm grateful for. And it means also, I think, we, we have to commit to the d- discipline of uh, simplicity. Um, learning how. And this isn't just about stuff, right? I'm not saying let's all sell everything we have. Though you might need to, I don't know. Um, This is more about simplicity with our time and our energy. Of being being willing to to open up space. Space that can be interrupted. Uh, Space where we decide we're not going to move to the next thing that we really want to. We're going to be present with the thing right in front of us. Uh, I I had a friend who was a Episcopal priest in Federal Way, part of a clergy group. And as a discipline and commitment to his work, whenever he would go to the hospital, he would clear out his schedule for the rest of the day. And sometimes he'd only be there for 15 minutes, but if he felt like the person needed and the spirit was calling him, he would stay there for a whole day. This is one of the gifts of Sabbath that I think we don't pay enough attention to. That Sabbath rest isn't just about us recharging. It isn't even just about us having a moment where we acknowledge that we're not the ones who maintain. um, We're not the ones who keep the world spinning. God is. But Sabbath rest is also meant for other people. That it actually frees us up to provide space for others to have rest who don't have the luxury to have rest. This This is the invitation that the kingdom of God is constantly giving us. It's what we see in the life and ministry of Jesus, and it's what we hear in the parables. It's like a mustard seed and yeast. It's like one lost sheep going after it. It's like a pearl that we go after. So let me pause here. What... What either uh, delights you or frightens you about this notion of God showing up in the ordinary or the mundane? Or maybe there's something that struck your imagination. Um, Let's have a few moments of just reflection with one another. As you were talking, just something, a memory flashed uh, in my brain when I was in junior high. My father, um, who I've often counted as my best friend uh, before he passed away, um, he did something that just drove me crazy uh, as a junior high kid. On our little block in Arlington, Texas, there was a little neighbor boy, I don't remember his name, but he would knock on the door. Now, my dad's name is Park, and he would have a, this little boy had a lazy R in his speech and he would say can Pa come out and play and my dad would come out 
sit on the front porch and just spend time. About five, ten minutes maybe, you know. Yeah. But he would, and it was just always embarrassing. I was like, you know, come on, so yeah, you know. Yeah. Uh, but that was my father. And this whole concept of everything that Jack Exxon wrote a book years ago, if you remember Jack Exxon, mm-hmm. he wrote The Glory of the Ordinary. Mm-hmm. And, and that's really, I think that's, that speaks to him. The thing that I was thinking about was as we were sharing our moments, um, one of them was like having our kids and stuff all together, like just a time where we were actually all enjoying what we were doing with each other. And then the other, I the thing in listening to you talk, um, I was just thinking about how it was unhurried time and how mm. like so much of time, especially when you five kids, um, <laughs> is hurried and just yeah. moving in the direction of something else. And so yeah. just, I think it's, in both cases, like we had to do preparation and kind of along that Sabbath line, like do preparation to be all together yeah. and then yeah. we could just be all yeah. together. Yeah, that's great. Thanks. Miles? Sure. Yeah. yeah. I won't point out that you said you're never going to speak again. Well, it did absolve me about four seconds after. Oh, good, good. Okay, okay, yeah. So, I had to. That's great. I went. Something that struck me today was, as you were sharing that, Ben, was um, the intentionality with which you can structure your life to be open to these um, things happening, to, to community, to God's kingdom, to vocational living, and that sometimes the serendipitous doesn't happen by accident. Yeah, right. Um, and, and that's that's really uh, really interesting, and, and, and we've been thinking some, some deep thoughts as a family this week and wrestling with some things, and um, that just sort of put me on this interesting path of it's fascinating to say what if we made our decisions on a number of things in life based around intentionality of living towards God's kingdom mm-hmm. uh, which I confess is probably not even in my top five mm-hmm. uh, right now mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Thanks, a couple of things that came up to me you talked about the distraction that we're always distracted to the point that we don't know it and to me the sort of opposite of that is acting with intention and I think that that coupled with you know the important things tend to happen in the ordinary moments like if you are distracted in all of those ordinary moments you're going to miss it um, or not experience it fully and the other piece that occurred to me is we're talking about the most of our life is the boring moments. The yeah. graduation, the promotion, whatever, those are yeah. you know, the really great family vacations. That happens a dozen times, maybe yeah. a few dozen. Um, the ordinary is happening, you know, thousands of times. Um, and that means that putting more intention into the ordinary, like we have a much better chance of sort of having a better experience and those times being better than trying to yeah. make that vacation even bigger right. or, you know, achieve that one more exciting, you know, big moment. Yeah. Um, if, you know, 
the 95 or 98 percent being twice as good is going to make yeah. a much bigger difference than the two percent being yeah. 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 For me, it's like a challenge to sort of change some of my internal narrative. I think a lot of times, yeah. like even so last week, the first time we did that exercise, I found myself trying to like search for the perfect moment or the, the one that had to be the best or, you know, mm-hmm. like or spectacular or whatever. And I think a lot of times, for me personally, there's a narrative of my head of like, that moment doesn't matter. Right. Um, and change like, for example, that short moment with my neighborhood, it's very easy for me to sweep that under the rug or to be like, that wasn't important, that doesn't matter, that's too simple, that that was nothing. And to, to yeah. change the way I think about those things, which then allows me to be more mindful in every moment of my day because yeah. each moment, regardless of what it is, matters. <coughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, Andre, uh, John, go ahead. So I was thinking that climactic moments that we um, take pictures of, mm-hmm. you know, like uh, opening Christmas presents, or weddings, or Thanksgiving spreads, you know? That, but how many hours and days of planning did it take to yeah. bring together that Thanksgiving spread? Right. Or that, and, and, and what about the commutes? What about shopping the grocery store? Yeah. What about... You know, yeah. I mean, there's so there's bazillions of things. <coughs> Where is love one another in that? Where is love your neighbor yourself in that? Yeah. Where is giving thanks in that? Yeah. There's uh, we need climate, we need holidays, yeah. we need holidays, or it would be, but there's bazillions of other pieces yeah. before you get to right. Christmas morning. Yeah, and it, thinking of both uh, your reflection and Lee's, that even the most spectacular moments tend to be a combination of hundred ordinary moments that, that led up to it. Uh, Andre Delbeck, who uh, taught at Claremont a Business, he had this great practice that he invited uh, his business students. Uh, he was a devout Catholic, but most of his students weren't, but he invited all of his business students, and he had both traditional age students and older adults, into a thing that he called threshold meditation, which I want to invite us into this week. It's really simple. Uh, When you're standing on the threshold between two different things, perhaps it's one task and you're moving to the next task, or maybe you're moving from answering email uh, to a meeting, or maybe uh, you're doing something in the house and you're going to, when you're on the threshold in between two things, maybe it's two conversations, uh, he says take three deep breaths. Uh, The first breath, you acknowledge the thing from which you're coming. And the second breath, you acknowledge and identify the next thing, whatever it might be. And then in the third breath, uh, you make a commitment to be present to that next thing. Uh, and it's really simple because we all have to breathe anyway. <laughs> Let's leverage what we're already going to be doing. Uh, for, this, for this small commitment to be present to the small stuff.